Good morning. I'm reading from Luke 22, verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I don't know why I'm feeling uh, nervous this morning. Yeah, weird. Maybe that extra hour of sleep. I didn't drink coffee. I don't drink caffeine. It's a bizarre thing. Anyway, I'd appreciate your prayers. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your word. I ask God that your blessing would be upon these people here. I ask God that you would reveal to us what you desire us to learn, not only for head knowledge, God, but for change, for transformation. I think we're here and anyone here can go on the internet Anyone can listen to a podcast. Anyone can accumulate information in their head about the Bible. But we want you to change our lives. So God, I ask that your word would be transformational, that it would mean something to us this morning, not in terms of our intellect, because I think all of us here are pretty familiar with this story, even if we aren't familiar with the Bible or Jesus, but just living in this society. So Holy Spirit, pray for change. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's scriptures particularly insightful, uh, helping us to discover the core of who Jesus is. And it gives us an insight into the most raw, the most vulnerable feelings of Jesus, who is fully God and fully human. And so this is probably the most intimate place in the gospel's history of showing us Jesus' feelings and his emotions. And this is where we find Jesus exhorting his disciples to pray they may not enter into temptation because he knew what was to come. He knew that they were going to suffer, that they were going to go through torture, that they were going to die a martyr's death. And we find in verse 44 that Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground on a night in a time of year when a cloak would be good to have in the evenings. And that's why Jesus told them to exchange a cloak for a sword in verse 36. And this was a shocking statement to them. This is one that would have really got their attention. And this is why a fire was kindled in the middle of a courtyard where people sat together in verse 55. And yes, fire was also used for light as well as heat, but if it wasn't at least a little bit chilly, why do we think we find Peter in the light? Don't you think he would have been hiding? He wouldn't have wanted anyone to know who he was, which he didn't want anyone to know who he was. But he was in the light, which for me, it's telling me it's kind of a chilly evening. And so it gets me to think, Jesus is sweating on this chilly evening. So you, you find that Jesus is obviously in agony, according in verse 44, and he's praying earnestly and he's perspiring sweat, becoming like great drops of blood because he was going to soon experience the horror of his earthly life. Now, before we get any further into our study, I want to just lightly unpack who Jesus is who this Savior is, who this Messiah is, whom we as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, call Him Lord. And this is such a huge subject matter that one sermon is not going to do it justice. We'd have to do a whole sermon series on this, and it would take months. And instead of doing that, I just want to give you some thoughts. I want to give you some Scripture references, and I'd like you to look them up and study them on your own, and maybe in your small groups or community groups, but dig through this stuff because it's not just information. Let this stuff really transform you because this is a critical question for us to wrestle with. Who is Jesus? 
Now hang in there because this is not going to take that long. But just write down these thoughts and these scripture references or into your iPad or iPhone or whatever. Before, I used to think when you guys did this stuff, oh, they're texting, how rude. But I understand that's how you're taking notes because I caught myself like that once. And some pastor glared at me like, what are you doing? I'm taking your notes. And so I understand. Go ahead. I don't think you're rude anymore. (laughs) But for those of you who are really texting and doing those type of things, you're rude. Um, Now, take a look at the first chapter of the Gospel of John. That the word, Jesus, is eternal. You look at John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, not created, not caused, not originated. There is no origin. Independent of any other form of existence is God. And there was never a time when the Word did not exist. It always was. It's eternal. The Word was not created. It is Creator. Verse 3, John chapter 1. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I think that's pretty definitive. God broke through that which was eternal into our existence, into His creation. He broke into something He created, time. God created time. So the eternal broke into the transient. Now chew on that. I mean, that's just mind-boggling. I've been chewing on that for weeks, trying to figure that out. Like, that's nuts. And that chewing, it still has flavor. I'm still getting stuff. It's not like the cheap spearmint gum Wrigley's or whatever. It's like it's still there. And now jump to John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and He beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Why was Jesus in such anguish at His death? Have you ever thought about this? Because billions upon billions of people have died throughout human history. Have they not? Billions and billions upon billions. So what's so different about Jesus' death? Really? It's a death. Billions of people, billions upon billions of people have died. Why was he so tormented prior to his death? Well, we're not talking about another human facing death. We're talking about God becoming man who faced death. It's different. This is something I'd like for you to study on your own. I mean, isn't this mind-boggling? At least to me, it's mind-boggling. Maybe not for you, but for me, it's just crazy to me. God becoming human without giving up His divinity. And the infinite God becoming a finite man. The Creator becoming the created one in Jesus incarnate. The invisible becoming visible. He became flesh. Fully God, fully man. And He knows our emotions. He knows our feelings. He's experienced them. He experienced how we make decisions, how we make choices, how we learn. He was fully human, which doesn't mean He only had the emotions and the decision-making and the learnedness of a human, but He was also fully God. So two natures in one person. Chew on that. Study that. The God of Christianity is a God on a cross who came from heaven to earth. It makes me want to sing that song, Came from Heaven to Earth. Because my daughter always sings that. My four-year-old, she, was, she sings that all the time. And so her teacher was like, where'd you learn that song? And she was like, can you teach the class? And so she's in the, you came from heaven. And she's all like in the motions and stuff. I was like, that's so awesome. She's so cute he knows what we feel he knows how we learn he knows how we make choices god is not distant he came from heaven to earth to be with us and this was always his plan it was always his plan and more scriptures for you to look up and study in regards to god's plan isaiah 53 romans chapter 8 second corinthians chapter 5 now the one i just want to read to you guys is isaiah 53 Because it's Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus incarnate is even born. Let me just read this to us before we get started in our study just to give us a backdrop of Jesus. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Why did Jesus... God come to earth to forgive transgressions, to forgive the transgressors of their sin, because in the beginning, everything was awesome. Right? Genesis 1, everything was great. And then there was the fall of man, and it ruined everything, and we're living in that. And God has sent His Son to redeem that. Those who believe that there is forgiveness through God, through Jesus, will receive it even though a judgment is deserved. They will receive forgiveness. He pardons your sin when you believe in faith that Jesus took your place of judgment. Your sin was placed on a sinless Jesus. And it's not about being religious. It's about what Jesus did to forgive sinners, to make what was originally planned in the garden a beautiful place, a communion with God that was broken by Adam and Eve. And our sins deserve punishment, and that is justice from a holy God. But Jesus took that sentence away from us and brought it upon Himself. Because Jesus died for us, our judgment is wiped out. It's forgiven forever. He took our place to our scriptures for this morning. Let's take a look at them. Verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. It says, as was his custom. So the Mount of Olives was a familiar place for Jesus and his disciples. The disciples were twelve. Here, they are now 11 because Judas has gone off because he's gone off to show the religious leaders where Jesus is. So now there's 11 of them and he doesn't show up again until verse 47, which we'll get to next week. Verse 40, let's go there. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And when he came to the place. Now this place was some place that Jesus probably customarily prayed. The place. And I think this was because Judas knew where to go find him. Judas knew where out of all this area, he always prays here, so I can lead you there. Now, keep in mind that these are the last hours of Jesus' life. What would you be doing the last hours of your life? You'd probably want your loved ones around you. 
And so it was with Jesus, who was looking out for his disciples. He had his loved ones around him. He advised them to pray that they may not enter into temptation, to stay in close communication with God so that they don't fall into temptation. Now, what temptation was Jesus speaking of? I think Jesus was speaking of anything that would draw them away from God. So, the temptation to quit. To hide, to doubt, to leave, to deny. I think it was whatever temptation was going to pull them away from God, and Jesus was concerned about this. Now, you and I know people who have entered into temptation. Some of them are still in it, some of them haven't come out yet, some of them have come out. And a good number of people I've witnessed to have had a relationship with Jesus at one point in their life. We are kind of like post-Christian, pre-Christian, like all over Christian. Like there's a lot of people that have a Christian background and some that don't have it at all. But many who I have conversations with actually have a Christian background where their parents are ministers or where their grandparents used to be ministers. I've met a ton of them in the Bay Area. It's surprising to me. One guy was a Buddhist priest. And so I'm, I'm getting to talk to him and I'm trying to figure out like his background and stuff like that. And he shares with me his grandfather used to be a Methodist pastor and that he grew up in the youth group and all this kind of stuff. So they have a background of Christianity oftentimes. But somewhere along the line, they entered into temptation. And only God knows whether they're going to come out of that. How many people do you know who have fallen into temptation? And maybe it's you. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're there. Jesus is troubled about your prayer life. About your lifeline to God. Because without that, you may fall into temptation. He already told them in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Last week, we talked about the meaning of Simon. Simon means to hear with acceptance. So, hear with acceptance. Hear with acceptance. And we also said that the you in that verse is in the plural form. So, Jesus was addressing all of his disciples there, not just Simon Peter. And he was telling them to hear him with acceptance because Satan wants to take all of you out. Now, I think the disciples did pray. I don't think that they just ignored Jesus and didn't pray at all. I think that they did pray that they wouldn't enter into temptation because how else do we explain you and I here hearing the Word of God? We're here, right? So they did fall asleep. But I think they did pray. And of course, they could have prayed more, right? They fell asleep. But can't we all? Can't all of us pray more? But if they didn't pray at all as Jesus instructed, I don't think that they would have brought the gospel to the world. Now, I, I think the gospel would have gone out to the world regardless of whether these guys did it or not because that was God's plan. But I don't think it would have necessarily been these particular disciples if they didn't heed Jesus' instructions to pray against temptation, to pray that they stay in the love of God. Let's take a look at the book of Jude, starting in verse 20. Beloved, Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So, yes, God is able to keep you from stumbling, and He does that in partnership with you. Now we go to verse 24. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, you have a part. Right, You are to pray. And that's how you keep yourself in the love of God. Communicating with God where He speaks to you and you speak to Him. And there are things like prayer which God gives us the dignity to participate in. Now what else are we to do in addition to prayer? There are many as a disciple of Jesus. But let me just point out a few of them to you found in Hebrews chapter 10 starting in verse 23. Let us Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I want to point out one in particular not neglecting to meet together. 
Now, there are some who are anti-church for whatever reason. And I'm not talking about those who don't believe Jesus to be their Savior. But there are Christians who are anti-church, which, to tell you the truth, I don't understand that. I don't understand that at all. I understand nuances of being anti-church, but not as the whole. But if the church fits into the definition of Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25, what's the problem? Why are Christians anti-church? We are not to neglect meeting together. Now sure, you can meet in homes and smaller fellowships, but I've found that some are totally against anti-church assembly, like institutional assembly. But if there are those churches who are following this biblical instruction, why is there that sentiment? Why all the negativity towards brothers and sisters in Christ? We are to encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, one stick in a fire doesn't last very long, right? Like in a barbecue, one coal off on its own doesn't last very long, right? There isn't a lot of heat produced. There isn't a lot of light produced. It's not until we all kind of come together. And this is something that concerns me on a larger scale as well as on a smaller scale. On a larger scale, let's just take a look at Oakland, for example. Oakland has over 400 churches. Did you know that? There are so many denominations. There are so many independent churches that are here in Oakland. There are new churches coming into Oakland being planted. And I think it's great. I don't think that we can have enough. But I do have a concern. What concerns me is that there are a good number of them who are going about it completely separate and independent of other churches. Just doing their own thing. When we're serving the same God. I mean, that's odd to me. I understand there are different styles of worship and preaching and service, so the diversity is fantastic. It's great. But while we're in the same kingdom, there are so many churches disconnected from everyone else. It's bizarre to me. Because how much more could we do if we came together? I'm part of uh, Pastors of Oakland, which is the largest gathering of Oakland pastors, and it's predominantly black. I've been going there for years. And in my attendance there, in the years, there's been two other Asians that have gone that I've seen. But they've only gone like once or twice or something like that. That's it. And there are a ton of Asian churches here in Oakland. It makes no sense to me. I go there and there's like three to four white pastors. There are a ton of white pastors here in Oakland. What's going on? Same thing with the Latinos and any other group. Why aren't we more together? I've also been invited to other groups of pastors that are gathering by Asian pastors and white pastors. And so I look at the distribution list and if it's like Wing, Wong, Lee, uh, Lam, whatever, like all these things, I, I say no. I already have that. But when it says like Johnson, Jackson, I'm there. That one I'm part of. And now to bring it a little closer to home, into our church. This might sting a little bit more. We have a bunch of different ministries. A lot. We have a bunch of different causes. We have a bunch of different small groups. We have a bunch of different outreaches. Some of them you don't even know about because they're so cliquish and they're off on their own. Most of them, which I feel are more like independent cells. Why aren't we together? What can we possibly light up, heat up, if we're all broken up and separated like that. It's not going to happen. We serve the same God. Why aren't we serving together? Right? We, we want people to come to Jesus, right? That's what we want. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Can we drop our personal agendas and our personal causes and come under the banner of God's love sharing the gospel with those who do not know Jesus. Can we do that? Jesus said in John chapter 14, verses 23 through 24, 
If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him, and we will make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. question for you is, how are you doing with this? How are you doing? Have you been baptized? Are you meeting together to be of encouragement with one another? How is your prayer life? Do you take communion? Do you share the gospel with others? Do you evangelize? Do you disciple? Now, none of those things in themselves determine your relationship with Jesus Christ and whether you're a true Christian or not, but they do give you a good gauge as to how your relationship with Jesus really is. Let's go back to our text here, Luke 22, verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. So Jesus withdrew from eight of them, a stone throw apart, and while three of them were with him. So Matthew and Mark's Gospels record that Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, went with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus knelt and prayed. So eight of them there and the other three with him. Matthew 26, verse 39, recorded that Jesus fell on his face. Mark chapter 14, 35, recorded that Jesus fell on the ground. Now, I want to point that out to you because Luke doesn't give us that kind of detail. But I want to point out to you the agony that Jesus must have felt. He fell to his face. He was prostrate. He fell to the ground. First, he exhorted his disciples to pray because he loved them deeply. And then he himself prayed because he needed it. He knew where he had to go. Verse 42, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, recall what Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, in the Lord's Prayer, starting in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. I know some of you are tempted to like say this with me. You can if you want. I'm going to stop though. Verse 10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He also addressed temptation in that prayer. Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Which Jesus was concerned about as he addressed his disciples in Luke 22 verses 40 and 46. Now, Jesus practiced what he preached. He always does. Back to verse 42. Look at what he said. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Right? He's practicing what he preached in the Lord's Prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, Jesus is God. Why in the world would he pray, remove this cup from me? Well, Jesus is also fully human. And as a man, we have reactions, we have responses to things that happen to us. We respond, we react to things that cause us pain. There's something that is not good within you if you can't feel pain. Right? A psychologist would call that frozen feelings, and that's not a good place to be. So whether it's psychological or neurological or whatever, it's dangerous not to be able to feel pain because you can harm yourself. You can lose a limb. You can lose your life if not for feeling pain. So recoiling from pain is a normal thing. And Jesus showed us His humanity and how He felt the horror of torture, of pain, of humiliation, of suffering, of death. Jesus suffered physically, emotionally, socially, legally, psychologically, spiritually, every which way imaginable. He can sympathize with whatever we experience in our lives. You look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus endured much for you and for me. Verse 43, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Jesus exhorted His disciples to pray. He Himself prayed. He experienced great agony. And then an angel from heaven appeared to strengthen Jesus. Now, when I think about angels coming to strengthen me, I'm hoping for deliverance. Right? Let's be honest. I'm hoping for take this pain away. 
take my suffering away. Where everything in me is good. Where I don't have to deal with this stuff. But that's not what happened with Jesus. Look at verse 44. And being in agony, He prayed more earnestly, and His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The angel strengthened Jesus, but that didn't mean that all was well. That didn't mean like everything just went away. What happened? Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. The strengthening Jesus received from the angel wasn't taking away his problem. wasn't taking away his suffering. wasn't taking away his pain. It seemed like things got worse. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. If an angel comes to you to strengthen you, it doesn't mean that your problems are going to go away. Perhaps the difficulties and the challenges in your life aren't meant to be removed. Maybe they're to drive you to pray more earnestly. Suffering is a part of life. Pain is a part of life. Death is a part of life. And I think one of the things we are tempted to do is bypass it all. We don't want to go through that stuff. Including me. I'm not saying like, yes, I'm ready. Uh, I don't want to do that either. I think a lot of the unhealthy behaviors and the addictions our society is hooked on are medications. They are coping mechanisms to bypass pain, to bypass suffering. And I'm not an advocate of sadistic behavior. However, there are ways to strengthen and there are ways to weaken how we deal with suffering and pain. People seem to be so clueless sometimes on how to minister to hurting people. The angel came and strengthened Jesus. We're not told how, but I'm sure the angel didn't tell Jesus, come on, buddy, just toughen up. You're going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. We know suffering is a part of life. We know death is a part of life. We know pain is a part of life. But it doesn't mean like everything's going to be okay in that time period. I was talking to my mom the day after my friend Petey died, and she noticed something was different from me on the phone. And I actually called my mom to to get some consolation, to get some care, to listen to mom. And so before I can even tell her anything about it, she said, what's wrong? And so I told her, I was sad, and and I told her the whole story. And now I have to preface this with, with saying, I love my mom. I love her a lot. But my mother is a terrible comforter. I have no idea why I called that woman. She's just like, don't be sad. I'm like, what? Things like that happen all the time. You'll be fine. I'm like, what? What? I was speechless. I was like, I can't believe you raised me and I'm okay. Um, And so right after I called my sister and I was like, mom just sucks. I was like, she's horrible. You know what she told me? And my sister was like, I can't believe it. Get off the phone with me. I'm going to yell at her. I was like, yeah, okay, go yell at her. And I hung up the phone. Now, if that's what you'd say to me if I were to call you, keep your mouth shut. Just don't talk. So be careful how you extend care to people. Your intentions might be great, but your methods... And what comes out of your forked tongue is terrible. Our task as caregivers is not to take people's problems away. right? It's it's not to take people's pain and suffering. It's not to take those things away. I think one of our main goals as a caregiver is to somehow direct people to pray more earnestly to God. And that has to be done with a lot of care. Otherwise, it seems like you're just deflecting someone's issues and not taking an interest in them. All of a sudden, someone comes up to you and pours out their stuff to you, and you can't just say, like, "Uh, I'll pray for you. I mean, how does that feel? That's happened to me. I've gone to pastors. I've gone to pastors as a teenager or as a college student, as a young adult, and I've gone to go seek counsel and comfort on numerous occasions, and I've just been treated like a hospital patient. I'll pour out my heart telling them my problems. I have tears and everything. I'm telling them all my stuff, and it's just like, here, take these two verses, and don't call me in the morning. These verses will comfort you. How about you? 
How about you comforting somebody? Right? Because even God sent the paracletus. He sent the comforter. He didn't just say, like, I'm going to give you your word. Deal with it yourself. Right? He sent the Holy Spirit. So be careful about giving people these pep talks in the middle of their suffering, in the middle of their pain. Don't tell people they're going to be fine. Keep your head up. If their head's down, put your head down with them. If they're crying, cry with them. If they're laughing, laugh with them. Let's not question people's faith in the middle of their suffering, right? If you just knew the Bible better. Did you know that these verses are in here? Be quiet. Don't bother me with that stuff. I need to know that you care about me. Listen to them. Be present with them. I think that's what the angel did with Jesus. It's like, did Jesus have to know more scriptures? Jesus, did you know I wrote it? Like, give me a break, did I know? Like if somebody coming to me and saying, did you know, Pastor? Yes, I studied that. I don't need to hear that right now. And if you find yourself in a lot of pain and in suffering and in sorrow, so did Jesus, and He understands. He's not coming to you and just going to be like, here, take these verses and go home. Wallow in your disappointment, in your suffering and in your pain. He knows. He knows exactly what's going on. And maybe you find yourself in a place where you're overwhelmed, much like Jesus here, where you've lost a loved one or you're experiencing a broken relationship or you've received a bad health prognosis or someone you love has received that. And whatever has caused this overwhelming sorrow in you, you're human. You're human. And Jesus experienced this in His humanity. And it is normal to recoil from pain, from grief. It's normal to grieve. Jesus did. It is part of your healing. And when someone wants to move you too quickly, there's a chance for more harm to be done, isn't there? The deeper the hurt, there's a likelihood that the rehab is going to take longer. You don't rush people through that. So why do people think that a deep-rooted problem in one's life will be solved in an instant? It's not. It's dependent on what's going on. And we need to walk with people through their problems, challenge them when it's appropriate, and stretch them so that they can move forward, but don't do more harm. Sometimes listening and being present with someone does more than quoting Bible verses. The angel was present for Jesus, The problems didn't go away, but we read that Jesus prayed more earnestly. The angel did his job. Verse 45, And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. So you read that in verses 42 through 44, there was a serious time of wrestling. But it seems that something changed here in verse 45. He rose. Mark and Matthew tell us, that Jesus, his face fell to the ground. In verse 45, he rose. You you see the tone change from one of anguish to one of readiness. He's ready. This doesn't mean that the suffering and the pain has stopped. He's just ready to face it. He's ready. But what did he find? His disciples sleeping. He suffered, he was in anguish and sorrow all night praying, and his closest friends fell asleep on him. Now, granted, they fell asleep for sorrow. I'm so glad that Luke included that in the text. Because they were sorrowful, right? They were sad too. I mean, it wasn't like they just fell asleep, like, oh, he's just doing his thing. Let's go to bed, guys. They were sorrowful. Isn't it physically draining to be in sorrow? Isn't sorrow just exhausting? I mean, grief takes a lot of energy. You need a lot of sleep when you grieve. I think all of us have lost a loved one that we know, right? Ever notice how much you sleep? Mark recorded that they fell asleep on three occasions during the night. Jesus came to wake them up. They fell asleep. What can we go? Fell asleep. Come and wake them up. Now, verse 46, And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? 
Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, sometimes when people read this, they read it in a condemning way. Why are you sleeping? I don't see an exclamation mark. I see a question. Jesus instructed them to pray. But we find the disciples sleeping. So Jesus asked, why are you sleeping? Jesus asked them a question, but it's not with condemnation. Keep this in mind. You can tell that the question was asked without condemnation by what happened afterward. He told them to rise. He told them to rise and pray that they may not enter into temptation. He's always on the lookout for them. Now, how easy in a situation like this, like if I put myself in that situation, I'd be on a tirade. I'd be so mad. I'd be kicking them awake. I wouldn't be like, why are you sleeping? I'd be like, get up! Right? That's what I'd be doing. So good that I'm not Jesus. But wouldn't you be angry? Like at the last thing, you're like at the very last hours of your life, and you're like, come on, hang in there with me, guys. I mean, I would have been so mad. I would have put like their finger in warm water or something. I would have done something to them. I I wouldn't have just why are you sleeping? All the investment that Jesus put into these guys, all of the teaching, all of the time, but these guys are just clueless. And one has already betrayed him, and the others, they just don't get it. They can't stay up and pray, and in a matter of minutes, these guys are going to take off. They're going to leave Jesus. It would totally be understandable for me if Jesus got really angry here, because these guys blew it. They didn't do what Jesus instructed. But Jesus didn't blow them out of the water. Jesus is so gracious. How gracious he is to us. Because how many of us are sleeping? How many of us are being lazy when there are things He has instructed us to do? And we know it. We we all know the Great Commission, right? How's your prayer life? Because this drove Jesus to pray more earnestly. Now, I have to be honest here too, and I don't want this to come across as a convicting message. Because I think convicting messages, they have their place, but oftentimes they don't change people. You walk out of here and like, oh man, that was really convicting. Good passage. And you just come back next week to get some other conviction. Oh, that was convicting. And then you just come back next week. I'm praying for change. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit change you. I don't want to convict you. The Holy Spirit convicts. I'm not looking for that. So what I want to share with you is something that I'm really concerned about. I'm really concerned with the prayer life of our church. It's probably on the top of my list. More so than anything else. More so than small groups. More so than the operations, administration of the church. More so than church staffing or understaffing. More so than service. More so than missions. More so than anything. This is at the top of my list. We moved our weekly prayer time from Tuesday to Sunday at 5 p.m. in an attempt to make it more convenient for people to attend. And so more people have definitely come out, but it's not a ton of people. It's like a dozen. And that's really concerning to me. Are you coming to church just to receive more knowledge? Just to like learn more about Luke? Or just to feel a little tinge of conviction every once in a while? But where's the change? And I want to drive our church to pray more earnestly. Because really, out of our flesh, I have some talent. And you have some talent. And we can put those talents together and come up with something. And do it. But the thing is, it's only going to be as great as our talent. And as Christians, I want to do something supernatural. I want to do something extraordinary. I don't want to just be like, oh yeah, we're hosting a polling place. November 6th, come vote. We're part of the community. That's lame. I mean, don't you want to see people come to Jesus who used to have some sort of thing happening in their life and it's a miracle that they're even alive? And that they're here and that they're serving Jesus now? I mean, that's the stuff I want to do. I want to see somebody that doesn't have a limb grow one. That would be awesome. (laughs) Right? I want to see someone blind who could see again. 
Right? I want to see someone with terminal cancer healed. I want to see a broken marriage that's nowhere, and this guy's totally off on the other end, come back and repent and say, I'm sorry, and work something out with his wife. I mean, I want the good stuff. I don't want just a garden, taekwondo. Like, come on. I even started that ministry. I'm making fun of that. So I'm not saying that your ministries are bad, right? But that is lame if people don't come to Christ. The only reason why that is good is I've seen families come to Jesus from it. That's what's good. I've noticed broken families come back together where the husband and wife weren't getting along together and then their kids brought them to church. And then we started working on stuff. That I love. Learning how to throw a front kick. You can learn that on YouTube. That's lame. We're not going for conviction. Let's go for change. Let's go for like miraculous things. Like sharing the gospel. Really, when's the last time you shared the gospel? I'll confess to you mine. Mine was last week. And I shared it once the week before. I'm not anything special. I wish I could do that every hour. But I'm lame. I'm stupid. I'm I'm not so chicken. I can preach the gospel easily when I'm here and have a stage. And, oh, I'm going to preach the gospel. But get me on a one-on-one situation and I'm talking to somebody. I'm just like, oh man, God, really? You know, it's just like, I'm scaled. Like, uh. But... Everyone in my family knows the gospel, though, at least. My extended family. How about yours? Because if you're not going to share Jesus with them when they don't know it, who is, really? Who is? You've got to do it. If there's someone in your extended family who doesn't know Jesus, you've got to do it. Sleeping when something for the kingdom needs to be done. And I'm not challenging you with these thoughts and these questions to condemn you. Hopefully it doesn't come across that way. Hopefully it comes across like Jesus. Why are you sleeping? Because as a Christian, there is no failure. Have you ever thought about this? You cannot fail as a Christian. Because Jesus is a God of redemption. He will make anything wrong right. No matter what you did in your past, He can make it good. Right? So look at what Jesus did. Verse 40, he gives them this direction, right? He challenges them. He says, Pray that you may not enter temptation. And then you go into verse 46, and what happens? He says, Rise up. And he gives the same instruction. You and I have the Bible already. We already have the instruction. He doesn't have to change anything. When you fail, all he's saying is, Why are you sleeping? Rise up. Here. It's nothing new. It's the same instruction, right? So rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Same instruction as verse 40. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus is saying, get up and try again. Try it again. You didn't do it this time. Get up, try again. Because your failure is not the end. Your failure is just helping you learn. It is an opportunity for you to try again. It is an opportunity for you to experience the grace of God. Jesus is so kind. He's so tolerant. He's so patient. Right? Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, verses 1-4, through 4, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. But we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? I struggle so much to be kind and tolerant and patient as Jesus. That's not me. I am not like Jesus at all in this thing. I get so angry and frustrated and impatient so fast. I struggle with extending grace. I am very good at extending justice, but I stink at extending grace. And I don't think I'm the only one. I think I've talked to enough of you to know that you guys struggle with things just like me, that we extend justice much more quickly than grace. And I know because we probably don't like each other. 
because justice people tend not to like each other. Right? And let's, let's be honest. You don't like me, I don't like you, or whatever. Unless you're a gracious person, I love you because like, you extend grace to me and we don't get in this bickering justice match. Haya! Right? Like, we don't do that. But some of us have been followers of Jesus for a long time and if we received reviews on how we were doing from a manager or supervisor, how many of us would still be employed as a Christian? I think many of us would be fired. Now Jesus is, is so gracious and extending and, and kind. As followers of Jesus, we can't fail unless we don't follow anymore. He is a God of redemption, turning our junk into beauty, so we can't fail. You only fail when you don't get up and try again. That's when you fail. When you don't rise and do what He told you to do. And so He's given us all the instructions that we need. It's in the Bible. We have all failed at some point in following His Word. Get up. Try again. What a future we have in Jesus. Regardless of your past, you have a bright future in Jesus. He's the biggest cheerleader in your life. No one wants you to succeed and win as much as He does. And no matter what your past, you can get up and try again. That is the grace of God. There is no judgment on you. Have you had a bad week? Have you had a bad year? You have the rest of your life with Jesus. Get up. And as long as you're with Him, you get another try. Right? Satan wants you to give up. But this is not God. He loves you. He doesn't want you to give up. He doesn't give up on you. He's a God of grace. He wants you to get up. Try again. He'll never tell you to get out of His face. He will never tell you, don't ever come back. You failed. Forget it. Get out of here. Even if you have walked away from Him, you can still come back. Prodigal son. That's God. What has God instructed you to do? Who has He led you to share the gospel with, yet you haven't done it yet? Who has He told you to forgive, yet you haven't forgiven yet? Who has He led you to disciple, and you haven't done it yet? See, Jesus picked this motley crew to change the world 2,000 years ago. And the team He has picked in 2012 is not that different. We're not that different. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your instruction. I pray, Lord, that we would be driven to pray more earnestly. We need You. Father, we need You more than we realize. Help us to see the miraculous, the extraordinary, the unbelievable. In Jesus' name, amen.